Thank you, Brandon. Well, good morning to you. All right? All right. Both of you are fine. That's good. To, that's fine. That's good to know. Uh, hey, if you're new, welcome. If you're here for Siwi or you just stepped in off the street to join us, uh, welcome to Citadel Square. We're in the middle of a study of the book of Luke. So if you got a Bible, there should, uh, go ahead and grab it and find Luke chapter 10. There should be a pew Bible in front of you there. You can find it. Uh, put that in your hand and you'll be able to follow along. So Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to be. Luke 10. Uh, last week we finished looking at Jesus' parable, perhaps one of Jesus' most famous parables in the Good Samaritan. And Jesus gave that parable in response to a lawyer who said to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he followed up with, who is my neighbor? And how much uh, obedience is really required for me to inherit eternal life? How much loving of others do I really have to do? And we saw Jesus confront that way of thinking, saying, if you're going to build your justification, your right standing with God on how well that you empathize and love other people, here is the standard. That's the Good Samaritan. So were you convicted enough last week? Well, get ready. Jesus isn't done. Um, this is a story that is a part of Luke's gospel alone. The Good Samaritan is a part of Luke's gospel alone. About 30%, a little more than, uh, about 35% of Luke's material is unique in, when Luke writes it, which means it's not in Matthew, Mark, or John. It's just in Luke alone. And the Good Samaritan is in Luke's gospel alone, as well as this little section here. And we're just going to look at about three or four verses, 30, 10, uh, Luke chapter 10, 38 to 42, at the story of Mary and Martha. Um, you've probably heard this story before. Um, you, may have, you may know something about Mary and Martha. But as a little bit of a preparation for us as we get into a passage like this, I'd like you to consider... Um, your spiritual life. Where are you today? What are the patterns and the disciplines that you have in place? And I, I think for any of us when it comes to our spiritual life, really any of us when it comes to the lives that we lead, a lot of us, if you were to, you know, see me on a Tuesday or see me on a Friday and say, how is it going? I think the mandatory response for pretty much all of us would be, well, I'm busy, right? Are you busy? Yeah, but no, you're not. You just have lots of time. Are you with? Thank you. Okay, so you're busy. We're both busy. Both of us are busy. Uh, and, and I think when we, um, when we think about our lives, generally speaking, I think as we, we have a tendency to think kind of as hardworking Americans that more equals better, right? I, you get this around the beginning of the year, right? If you, hey, I've paid for the gym all last year. And I went twice. That was good. I want to do more than twice a year. I want to, I want to get serious about my, my weight. I want to get serious about my diet. I want to get serious about my life. I want to get serious about my career. And we all have a little bit of this internal pressure where we feel like if I, if I was more diligent, if I was more committed, if I was more about it, I think my career would be better than where it is now. If I made partner, if I got my degree, if I, if I accomplished these sales numbers, if I, if I did more than I'm doing now, then I could see that my life would be better than where I am today. Do you have that? Yeah, I think we all have a sense of like, I, I'm doing some, but I could do more. And if I do more, I'm sure it'll be better and my life will inevitably get better than where I am today. And I think we have a really savvy way of sort of stapling Bible verses to that assumption. That we go, do your work heartily as unto the Lord and not for men. 
And we, we look at Paul's description of the Christian life and he said it's like a soldier who's committed to his commanding officer. It's like a farmer who puts in work and by his hard work tills the ground and receives a share of the crop. It's like the athlete who competes according to the games and there are so many metaphors that are used in the scriptures. We even look at Paul's life himself where he says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, by the grace of God I am what I am and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Colossians 1, he says, For this I toil in presenting Christ, struggling with all his energy that he so powerfully works in me. We read Psalm 27. We prayed through that last month. I shared with at our men's breakfast from Philippians chapter 3 where, where Paul says, I don't consider I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. That for any of us, and maybe all of us, we have this sense that diligence and hard work and focus and commitment are the pathway to success in life. We have that Protestant work ethic, right? I mean, even last week we saw the, the lawyer say, love God with all your strength. So the question we have with those sort of assumptions that we, that we attribute to our family lives and to our careers and to our personal lives and maybe our personal ambitions in life is, is that what Jesus expects us to import into our spiritual life? Is that necessarily the way to spiritual fruit and spiritual success? Could I just be better if I applied that same work ethic to my spiritual life? And if we're not careful, we can import a lot of those cultural assumptions into our spiritual life and believe that what Jesus wants from me is just more. He wants me to be better, and to be better, I need to do more. Think more, pray more, serve more, give more, do more. Because he's Jesus, and he is able to ask anything of me. So that pressure and that tension is really what this little section is about in Luke chapter 10. So I'm going to pray, and I'll show it to you here as we as we unfold it. So pray with me. Father, as we look into your word, we pray for all of our spiritual hearts here this morning, where I'm sure there are many who come in here today and feel busy, who feel frantic, a little bit manic about their lives, and maybe that's how they feel about their spiritual lives. I know that's, that's true for me sometimes, that I fall into the way of thinking that if I could do more, I would be better. If I could accomplish more, things would go well, that I'd find more success and fruit and life. But Father, as we look into your word here, we pray that your spirit would give light to our eyes, that as the Psalms say, the unfolding of your word gives light, and I pray that there might be great spiritual light as a result of looking at this story of Mary and Martha, that it would expose our hearts in ways where we need to be uh, open and repentant before you, and that you would shape us and change us, and that we would hear your word minister to our heart in really deep ways here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. <clears throat> Amen. Well, look with me. Uh, Luke 10, verse 38. You all there? You good? Luke 10, verse 38. Now, as they went on their way. Now, if, if you haven't been with us the past couple weeks, Luke has a, a seam. He's got a, a kind of a, a break in his gospel at the end of Luke chapter 9 where it says that Jesus does something very particular. It says of Jesus that he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. He's got a focus. And, and what characterizes the remainder of Luke's, or kind of the, 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 entire, the entirety of Luke's next section is that Jesus is on a journey. And he's not on a, on a wandering preaching journey. He's got a focus to him. He's got uh, dedication. He knows where he's going and what he's about to do. He's got to go to Jerusalem because he's got to accomplish God's will for his life. 
He has to go into the, the lion's den and deal with and talk to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers, the scribes of his day and be rejected, crucified, dead, buried, and raised. That's a part of God's plan. And what we stepped out of last week in this conversation with a lawyer that sort of was a break in the story that a lawyer came up to him, we resume here in Luke 10 verse 38 and we're reminded that Jesus is moving. He's on his way. He's going to do something of great purpose and great design. And you'll see what it says next of Jesus in 1038. Jesus entered a village. Now, again, if you haven't been with us, you know that the 72 disciples were just sent out. Right? And the the 72 were were given a, a command and a commission to go out and to go into every place where he himself was about to go. Which means all of the 72 go out in this preaching and teaching ministry. They return. They're thrilled and excited that even the demons are subject to Jesus in his name. But these disciples upon their return have been kind of spreading the gospel message. The kingdom of the gods. Sowing that seed so that when they return Jesus talks about whether it's received or rejected. Right? He says, when you go out sharing some people will open their homes to you. Some people will receive you. Other people will reject you. And that's been key to this ministry. So as we prepare for Jesus to enter in a village, we're asking the question, what is going to happen with Jesus in this village? Will he be received? Will he be rejected? And we find out by the end of the verse that a woman named Mary welcomed her into her house. Great news. There's a house that has a son of peace that is receptive and sensitive to the message that has gone out in preparation for Jesus' arrival. And here's Martha who opens her home and welcomes Jesus just the way Jesus said it would happen. This is fantastic. It's incredibly positive. Now look with me at verse 39. And she had a sister. You'll notice all throughout this section today that Martha is the main character. Martha is the one that Jesus talks to. In fact, Luke himself makes several references in these next four or five verses to what is happening particularly with Mary. I'm sorry, not with Mary, with Martha. That everything will get interpreted based upon its relationship to Martha. And what 39 tells us is that we're introduced to somebody else. Martha is probably the older sister. She may be a widow. She may be single. We don't really know a lot about Martha except her charged up personality, which you hear in in this text and in other portions of the scriptures. But both Martha and Mary and Lazarus are key characters, especially in the book of John. If you have read John chapter 11, then you know the story of Jesus waiting to come and to heal Lazarus, allowing him to die, and then having that dialogue between Mary and Martha before he raises Lazarus. But Martha has a sister. And we're introduced to Mary here, probably the younger sister at this point. But we're introduced to her by very key pregnant terms. They're terms that that mean a lot to give us a background of what's going on in Mary's life. And I'll just tease them out here. You'll see them right in front of you in verse 39. She had a sister called Mary who, number one, she sat. Literally, the, the Greek term for that is, is it's a reflexive term, which means she did something to herself. This encounter with Jesus is not incidental or accidental or Jesus meeting somebody on the road. Mary has a particular response to Jesus coming into the home. And when Jesus enters into the home and is welcomed by Martha, Mary takes the posture and chooses something very intentionally. She chooses to put herself in front of Jesus. 
She chooses to sit herself. She's taking responsibility for her spiritual life. She's making a deliberate choice. She decides of her own volition to put herself in the presence of Jesus. So she sits herself. That has to do with what she does to herself. The second thing you know is that she sits herself in a location. You see where she sits herself? She sits herself, look what it says, at the Lord's feet. Now, okay, Steve, who cares? Well, that's a pretty important biblical idea. Let me just give you one other place where it's mentioned. When Luke writes in the book of Acts, he writes a, a, a portion in Acts chapter 22 where Paul talks about his own spiritual life, his own religious upbringing. And here's what he says. I'll just read it to you. This is Acts 22 verse 3. He says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. So Paul looks at his religious and spiritual upbringing and says, I've got pedigree because I was taught by one of the greatest Jewish rabbis of the day. Which means when Luke records it for us here of Mary, that Mary is choosing to put herself not just in the presence of Jesus, but she's submitting herself to Jesus. Jesus, our relationship is going to be one where I'm the pupil and you're the teacher, where you're the master and I'm the servant. Jesus, I'm going to put myself completely at your discretion as I sit at your feet. And number two, look at what it says, number three, it rather, sitting at his feet. And then number three, what is she doing? She's listening, isn't she? Now, if you've been with us through the course of Luke, you might, that might not mean a lot to you. But all through Luke's gospel, this has been a very key term. And it's been a very key term related to how people respond to Jesus. It's a positive response to Jesus' word. Let me give you just a couple places. Luke 6. Remember in Luke 6 when Jesus talks about the house built on the rock and built on the sand? He prefaces that story of, <clears throat> thank you. He prefaces that story with this in Luke 6. He says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. So Jesus gives us an illustration. This is what a person who hears me and does them, here's what his home is like. Here's what his, his life is like. His life is like a house that's built on the rock. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus is out preaching and teaching and the house is full and somebody as a messenger comes into Jesus and goes, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside. And Jesus responds to the fact that his mother and brothers are outside by saying this in Luke 8, 21. He says, he answered that my mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. One more. In Luke chapter 10, in this very chapter, when the 72 return, and Jesus talks about the cities that reject him, he then follows up by saying this to the disciples as they get ready to go out and do what God calls them to do. He says this, the one who hears you, hears me. So Mary... <clears throat> is not just sitting. Mary is not just in a, per, in a particular place of relationship with Jesus. Mary is listening to Jesus just like a disciple should. In fact, the Greek term is in, in the imperfect, which means she was continually listening. She was continually opening her ear. She was continually sensitive. She was continuously paying attention and leaning in and asking what is it that Jesus is saying to me? Now, 
that might be good encouragement for us that Mary is a model disciple, right? I think we would all say that that's important for us. We all need to be listening, and Jesus will make a point of this in a minute. But one of the things that you might not catch is, is the religious and cultural context of the day. Women, Samaritans, and Gentiles were not allowed to sit underneath the teaching of a rabbi. No rabbi would take a woman as a disciple. Do you know that? So here we have perhaps one of the most culturally disruptive realities of the ancient religious convictions of their day is that Jesus is teaching and discipling these women. Now all through Luke, if you haven't kind of paid attention or been thinking about it, the women have been the heroes. Do you know that? That Elizabeth is a hero for her submission to God's will. That Mary is a hero for her submission and listening to Gabriel and say, let it be to me according to your word. Anna the prophetess is in the temple when Jesus comes and she prophesies over Jesus. In Luke chapter 8, there are women in high-ranking positions in society who are willing to give sacrificially such that Jesus' ministry goes on. There are women who come into dinners between Jesus and Pharisees where they are looked at with a side eye because of the history that they have. And Jesus redeems, restores, and affirms them. Every single time when Jesus comes in context with a woman, beautiful and wonderful things happen. Do you know that? So when this moment happens and we, are, we walk into this home and we see Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, we go, this is culturally disruptive that Jesus would care that much about the spiritual well-being and the spiritual heart of this female disciple. So let me, like, let me say this, that I don't, ladies, I don't know if a lot of people say this to you. I, I don't know the worlds that you live in. I don't know the social and cultural upbringing you have. I don't know the relationships you've had with your parents or superiors or bosses or whatever. Can I say to you that your relationship with Jesus matters? Can I tell you that he is inviting you into a personal, dynamic, deep and sweet and meaningful relationship with you? And you need to lay hands on your spiritual life with the same kind of choices that Mary is making here. You are called that the, woman, the women of this church would grow in spiritual maturity as a result of being here. There are not, there are, you have far fewer barriers socially and culturally than Mary did. That Mary and Martha would be viewed. They can serve, they can't learn. They can be a part of tending the home. They can't know Jesus like these disciples can. And Jesus opens his life and heart to teach and pour himself into these women disciples that they would know him and walk with him and be developed into all the kind of women that God wants them to be. Do you hear me? This is what God wants for you. This is what Jesus wants for you, an intimate, deep, mature relationship with him. So if nobody is saying that to you, I'm saying that to you, that in this church we care about your spiritual life. That we want to invest and pour into and develop and allow you to know Christ in ways that you have not known him in the past. Because I think that honors what Jesus wants for women. Amen? Now, that's the intro. You with me so far? What time is it? 11.45. We've got tons of time. Time, we got, I mean, we're done at one. We got tons of time. 
So we've been introduced to Martha. Martha, welcoming, opening her home, way to go, Martha. Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to Jesus, submitting herself and her relationship to Jesus, submitting her spiritual life to him, making a choice. I'm going to listen to Jesus. But here's the tension. You ready for the tension in the story? Here's the tension. Verse 40. But Martha was distracted. Now imagine, you get told Jesus is coming over. Jesus and how many? 72. Jesus and 72 plus 12, because we got the disciples too. Jesus and 84 of his closest friends are coming to your house. I mean, imagine, just for a minute. Would you be vacuuming? Are you borrowing chairs? Do you have enough space in your living room? You got a den? You're going to have to seat people outside. Did you defrost the chicken? How many crock pots do you have? Why is there laundry still on the couch? Right? All, zzz, all of these things are happening in your brain when you're getting, like, we got, we got eight people just around my table. We can barely add one. And here's Martha opening her home. And you've got to feel, just, gosh, for the sake of Martha, for the sake of any of us, if you had, just imagine men telling your wife that you've got 12 friends coming to, ha- to dinner tonight. Can you imagine the pressure in the home? Imagine what Martha must, must be feeling. How the whole home is now being turned upside down to prepare for the fact that Jesus and all these people are going to be in our home. This is amazing. And Luke tells us that Martha was distracted. You know what the word for distracted? It's a one time in the Bible kind of word. The only place it's used is right here. And you know what it means? It literally means to be pulled away by something. Isn't that interesting? It's to be, something's laying hands on you and pulling you away from what you're doing. She's distracted. Have you ever been distracted? You ever been, I'm just, I'm just distracted. I just got a lot going on. I'm just real busy. I got to think about this thing. I got to do this stuff. I got to be in this place. I got to talk to that person. I've got so many things going on. And what's fascinating to me is that she's not distracted. It doesn't say, watch this, but Martha was distracted with Netflix. You see that? That's not in it. Martha was spending too much time on her phone. Martha had too many social obligations. Martha spent too much time going over her budget and shopping, so she's distracted. Martha, no, none of that is, is what's happening in the passage, right? Amen? Martha's doing work. Martha's working hard. Martha was distracted with much serving. You know what the, ser- the serving word, it's, it's almost always In the Bible, it's almost always used positively. It's used of deacons meeting needs. It's used of Paul ministering to people. It's used of aid given to churches. It's one of the the high marks of the kind of people you look for in Acts chapter 6 who are men who hate a bribe and who want to serve and who want to care for the needs of people. It's almost always used positively. 
And she is distracted with much serving. See, Martha's problem is not that she's distracted by bad things, that Martha is distracted by very good things. Martha is giving herself to the service of others. Martha is sacrificing. Martha is meeting needs. Martha is considering others. But her serving is distracting her. Her serving is doing something to her. Now, how do we know? Now, imagine just for a minute, some of you may employ people, some of you may be employers, employees. Would you want to hire Martha? Oh, man. Do I have a spot for a Martha? You want a hard worker, someone dedicated, someone careful about others, somebody who's engaged in the tax, somebody who can handle 84 people coming over and make dinner, still take, make, make all the plates spinning, right? We love these people. These are people we want in our organizations. These are people I give good references to. But her serving is doing something to her. It's, it's corrupting her. It's, it, it's affecting her. Now, how do you know because you'll see people like this, won't you? You'll see people dedicated, and you'll think to yourself, there, go get her. They're about it. They're doing really great stuff for the Lord. Did you hear she hosted 84 people in her house with Jesus? She's impressive. She's a Proverbs 31 kind of woman. Right? See, when... When Martha is in this spot, I, I have to just imagine, for, I, I have to imagine that Martha thinks she's hardworking. I, I have to imagine she, she thinks she's service-oriented. She's, she's putting others' needs ahead of herself. Martha's doing good things. And the key to understand really what's going on in her heart is by what she says, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, what happens? The mouth, it speaks. So we might not know what's happening in Martha, we can see everything that's happening around Martha, but what's happening in her? Luke has to tell us she's distracted. She's being pulled away. Now watch this. The remainder of the verse is very, very helpful. <clears throat> One, she went up to him. Where, what's Mary doing? She's sitting down. What's Martha doing? She's going up to him. It, mo most of the time when this verb is used, it has to do, it always carries a sense of suddenness. Of, I'm going to talk. I'm going to do something. I'm going up to Jesus. Now just imagine for a minute. Just pretend with me for a minute. Is Martha's face red in your mind? Does she have a towel on her shoulder? Is she, she's gone beyond, you know, perspiring. She's sweating. Do you think she spent some time meditating and thinking about the appropriate way to address her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? But she went up to him. You think she's got a little pep in her step? Think she's ready to let him have it? We're going to have a conversation. It's going to be me and Jesus. You think this is going to go well? Hang on. She went up to him and said, Lord! I don't know how she said it. I just want to imagine she's yelling. That's not in the text. I don't really know. But isn't it interesting what she calls him? Lord. Lord, 
Lord. You ever find, you know, in your life, I've got great theology when I'm under no pressure. It's incredible. I'm a powerful theologian. But you add 84 people and the turkey's not ready. You add significant stress. You add things that we ought to be doing. You add ways that we need to get better. You add, right, what happens? My oh Lord becomes, Lord, you think she's doing this? I think she might be. We all have a tendency to forget who we're talking about. We all talk good theology, but when the pressure's on, we have a way of forgetting who it is we're talking to, right? She has a way of forgetting and missing the fact that she is, in fact, talking to the Lord. Three different times in this passage, in these few verses, Jesus will be referred to as the Lord. Once on the mouth of of Martha... She went up to him and said, Lord, watch this. Do you not care? Now, the way it's phrased in the Greek is that it's phrased in such a way that it presumes a positive answer. It's used over in Mark when the disciples are in the boat and they wake up Jesus and they go, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? As if to think and to say, of course Jesus cares However, what Jesus is doing isn't in line with my definition of Jesus caring, which is exactly where Martha is. It's not really a question, it's a, it's a confrontation. And Martha presumes by this question that Jesus is, or at least ought to be, as emotionally charged up as Martha is, right? You know, you ever... Young folks, you ever talk to an older saint in the Lord and you bring your problems and you're on like a nine and you're at, you got like a 103 fever about this situation and you're getting ready to talk to him and their response isn't the same emotional intensity as yours? You know why? Because they walk with Jesus longer and they go, hmm, that's interesting. Let's pray about that. Let's talk to the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And you're like, I'm frustrated. And here's Martha. Lord, don't you care? Don't you care what? Don't you care that my sister, you know the one sitting over there? Can Martha, this is interesting to me. You know what Martha, <laughs> I don't think Martha sees Mary listening. I think Martha only sees Mary sitting. Don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? What Martha has done is taken all of her serving and what has happened is all of her work on the outside for the sake of others who she ought to be serving starts to curve inward on itself. She goes, I'm the only one out here really doing it for Jesus. I'm the only one really making a sacrifice. If we... Lord, could get some more people that aren't so lazy like Mary, we could really get some stuff done in your name. We could make an impact. We could be significant. We could care for all these people that we've had if we just had some more help. And Jesus, don't you care that I'm serving you all alone? She's become precariously self-focused. Her, her serving is warped. And how does she treat those who are closest to her in the story? There's only three characters. 
She accuses Jesus and she accuses Mary. So, is her heart in a good place? How's she doing? She's not just distracted. She's got a very difficult heart problem that's going on and therefore she closes her rant at Jesus with this. Tell her then to help me. Well, Jesus, since number one, you care, number two, I'm all alone, and number three, Mary is lazy, one plus one plus one equals we need to leverage your power and your authority on my behalf to make my life better and more helpful in serving you, Jesus. Have you ever been there? You ever been in the spot where you got the party plates out and the cake and the streamers and the hat and you're throwing this party, this pity party for yourself and you're sitting at the table and you, you can't believe that Jesus has left you there all alone. I can't believe that, that uh, these people don't care about Jesus like the way I care about Jesus. I can't believe that God is not sending me any help. I can't believe that God doesn't see how much I'm sacrificing for him. And if I would, God, if you would just, you're praying those like imprecatory, oh God, hit them with scurvy prayers in your mind, like those lazy people, God, make their knees not work in Jesus' name or let them to work and then let them help me. And my lazy kids and my lazy spouse, if they these people wouldn't get in my way. We could really get some stuff done. You know, when I got into ministry, I had this kind of, you know, when you're in ministry for, you know, a couple of decades, like I've been, I look back on when I got into ministry and I realized, like, I had a little bit of an expectation that I would know more of what Jesus is doing. Like, well, you're in ministry. You ought to be able to, you know, read the tea leaves and interpret the times and do all that. And I recognize the longer I've been in ministry, the more I've discovered I know very little about what Jesus is doing. I don't know what Jesus is doing in your life. I'm not exactly sure what he's doing in the church. I, God knows what he's doing in the culture. I don't, gosh, there's so much stuff that I feel totally ignorant to in terms of what Jesus is doing. I know the gospel's true. I know Jesus is alive. But beyond that, I don't know a lot of what's going on. But what I've discovered is that I've got a whole list of things that I think Jesus ought to be doing. Don't you have that? Jesus, why don't you fix this thing? I'm trying to be faithful and work hard, and it'd be easier if you'd step in and give me a little Jesus power. Give me a little Jesus authority in this moment, and we might get some stuff done, Jesus. So if you're in that, look, if you're in that place, if your heart is in that place, would you agree that your heart is bonkers? Amen? Can we just agree together? When we get in that spot, we need help. When we get in that spot, we need somebody from the outside. We need somebody to help us. We need somebody to speak in to what is happening in our lives and hearts to give us clarity and understanding about what's going on because we just get too hot and twisted up in our heart. And aren't you glad that we have a wonderful counselor? Aren't you glad that there's somebody who knows what's going on in the heart of his disciples? The people who come to him and serve him and welcome him and even bring their problems to him. Even they have heart trouble that needs to be remedied by Jesus. So let's see. How in the world is Jesus going to get Martha out of this situation? She's in a pit. She can't see straight. 
Everything in her life is against her. How is Jesus going to do this? Verse 41. Now, what did Martha say? Martha went up to him and said what? Say, Lord. Lord, okay. Here's what Luke says. But the Lord answered. Isn't that good news? Isn't it good news that as much ranting and raving as Martha is doing, as emotionally charged up as she is, as many times as she's confronting Jesus with the problems that she thinks needs to change, that the Lord himself has something to say to Martha. But the Lord answers her. Martha, Martha. Now, you may read that and you go, okay, why twice? Why the repetition? Do you know in the Bible when names are, are referenced like this, it always comes with intense emotional engagement of the part of, on the part of the person who's saying it. So when David's son is killed by Joab, David's first response to his son dying is, Oh, Absalom, Absalom. He's emotionally torn apart. When Jesus in Luke, toward the end of this gospel, comes to Jerusalem and he goes, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's sharing that his heart is engaged. What was Martha's accusation? Lord, don't you care? And I have to believe that when Jesus says this, he cuts right to the middle of Martha's heart and says, I care. But I don't care about what you're doing. I care about you. And when he does that, I think it gives us a window into the fact that Jesus is a wonderful counselor. Because he doesn't talk about all the serving. He knows she's distracted. He knows her heart is a mess. But he wants to make sure that, Martha, this is about you and me. He sees Martha, not just Martha's work. Where we would see Martha's productivity and hard work and diligence and servant-heartedness, Jesus sees her. So this is important, guys, for, for you to have conversations and relationship with people about the gospel and maybe the suffering and the difficulties that they are facing. You need to spend time affirming your love for them, not just your solution to the problem. Amen. Right? So Jesus cares enough about Martha to look her in the eye and not just say, imagine, just pretend you're Jesus for a minute and Martha comes up to you yelling at you. What are you going to do? God and God, Martha, quit it. Sit down, like Mary. Sit down. But Jesus goes, I see you. I see right where you are. I see the situation you're in. And I see you. I don't see the work. I don't see the stuff. I don't see the distraction. I see you. Martha. Martha. And he gives her a state of being reality. He doesn't give her a state of doing reality, right? He doesn't go, let's, let's get out the spreadsheet and the, get the Excel out, and let's prioritize some of the things that you've got going on in your life. You're spending too much money on the thing. You're, you're too busy over here. This relationship's draining you. Let's get you what you need is a life planner. Have you heard of those? Let's get your life in order. No, Jesus tells her what's going on. He, he gives words to the, of, of what is going on in her heart. You are anxious and troubled. 
You're anxious. You're filled with cares. And this is encouraging to me that ministry hearts have these problems. Serving Jesus isn't absent a temptation to worry and anxiety. That we can get worked up about good things. That exists in our life and heart. You're anxious and you're troubled. When that you know, Jesus, in that anxious word, he uses it over in Luke 12 to talk about all the people of this world who run after what they'll eat and what they'll wear. And he says, don't be anxious for these things, but seek first his kingdom, right? When Luke uses the word trouble, they really intensify each other. But when he uses that word trouble, it's used of crowds getting stirred up to the point of riots. Do you know that? So what's Martha's heart doing It's right on the verge of a riot. You are anxious and troubled about many things. In context, what is the many things? The same word for many is the same word for much earlier in the passage. What are you worked up about? Ministry. What are you so anxious about? Serving you. What are you so stressed and troubled? Why is your heart so crazy? See, for Martha, this is a sure, look, this is a surefire way to heart sickness, is make everything a priority. Like socks and breathing are not on the same level, right? Amen? Right? We have priorities. We have things, if everything's a nine in your life, you are headed for spiritual burnout. You will crater. Look at what he says in 42. He said, many things. You were anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Just one thing. Mary has chosen. Key. She didn't just sit herself. She made a choice, right? Mary had a decision to make about her spiritual life. She chose the good portion or the good part. Now, imagine... What is happening in this context with all the meals and the serving and the cleaning up and the handing out of dishes and all that? Martha is working, 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 handing out portions, handing out feeding, handing out giving to people, handing out serving, handing out working. But Martha has chosen the good portion. Good in context for who? It's good for Mary. She's chosen something that does her spiritual life intentional spiritual good. And this will not be taken away from her. So what's the good portion? What is it that Mary has chosen? She's chosen Jesus and his word. She's chosen to make the single greatest priority in her life, not her busyness, but her open-hearted response to Jesus. You know this when you're busy. What's the first thing to pop out and you to leave off. That's For me, when I'm busy and when I'm going, when I have a lot going on, what's the first thing to, to leave is my intentional, devotional listening to Jesus. Is that a surprise to any of us I mean, that we have an adversary that seeks to just, just turn down the voice of Jesus in your life a little bit? You got a lot to do. You got important things to do. You got ways to make an impact in your life, in your home, with your workplace, with your kids. You got a lot of things to do. Just turn down the voice of Jesus in your life and get some stuff done. You'll make an impact. You'll be meaningful. But Jesus calls it an anxious and a troubled life. See, so for many of us, 
<clears throat> the interesting thing is we operate in our Christian lives a lot of times with a lot of assumptions and presumptions. This text is filled with presumptions about what Jesus thinks is important, about what others ought to be doing, about what I need to be doing. It just, it, it's a total thoughtless passage in that respect. And I think that creeps its way into our own spiritual lives, right? Because we go, well, you know, like Paul says, all's well that ends well. We go like, you know, like the tortoise and the hare. Work fast, be diligent. It's in Proverbs. Or King Hezekiah, you know, the like, you know, um, how's it go? The God helps those who helps themselves. Like, do you, know, do you know how quick we are to give each other worldly wisdom as counsel? And the tension in this passage is not between Martha, the one who's serving, and Mary, the one who's napping. The tension in the passage is over who's a disciple. Who's really willing to spend diligent, focused time listening to Jesus? Do you know why it's so hard to do that? Because there are so many things that compete for your time and attention. It takes diligence, focused pressure. It takes conviction. It takes, Lord, I'm not going to move. I'm not going to do anything until I hear from you on this. That's why in our church, our goal is not just sermon applications where we all scurry out of here like things that scurry. <laughs> Doing all sorts of stuff. Because people are going to say, why are you spending so much time sitting and listening to Jesus? Because it's the only way I know how to serve Jesus. For all of the serving and the giving and the working for Martha, Martha eventually is going to put everything away and her heart will not be healed. When Jesus says, I'm not taking it away from Mary, he says, this is only this is the only pathway to a heart that isn't anxious and troubled. Do you know that? Do you realize that, that that's what Christ has for you? I'm worried about so many things. I neglect Bible reading all the time. What's the very simple application? When Jesus comes to your house, when the word of God is in your house, what should you do? I should listen to it. There's your application. What is it that God's saying? Like, for our church, for our families, if your family is characterized by tension and pressure and anxiety and trouble, let's stop and let's listen to Jesus. If our church is characterized by people who come in and are just type A, doing the next thing, go, 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 we need to stop and we need to listen to Jesus. We need to stop and open our ears and sit at his feet and wait until he says what is wise and what is good and what is helpful for us and what heals our hearts so that we might have the wisdom and confidence to go out and actually serve without it cratering our spiritual lives. See, it's listening to Jesus that will transform you. That's why we read Psalm 27 at the beginning, right? To, to inquire in his temple and to behold him, right? Paul says we all with unveiled faces are beholding the Lord and are being transformed from one degree of glory to the other. How are you going to get the heart that you actually long to get? How are you ever going to be free from the anxiety and trouble that haunts all of us? It's by listening to Jesus. So the application of a passage like this is, are you listening to Jesus? Father, we pause and confess our tendency and temptation to 
listen to a lot of other things, to get distracted by a lot of other things, often so many of them good things. Would you give us courage to make the appropriate spiritual priorities that are reflective of our desire to be disciples of you? Jesus, we we pray for your grace. We pray for the hearts in this room and the hearts that may be feeling the anxiety and trouble of trying to serve in our own way. And Father, I pray that the goodness of Christ would be evident in our hearts as we seek your face. Even now as we make decisions to make your word a priority in our lives, that you would honor that ambition. That you'd minister to our hearts. That you'd give us a sense of where our hearts actually are. That you'd speak into our lives with confirmation an affirmation of your love for us, that you don't just see the things we do for you, but you see us. You see who we are and how much we need you. And may we respond hearing you, respond by listening to you, and seek to get up from our time with you, seeking to do the things that you ask us to do. Not our self-imposed plans or the dreams that we have of things that we ought to do, but that we would honestly uh, please you with our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.